Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. Now, what are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. You see, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions. However, we don't always have time to get around to all the live comments and questions that get sent in, but I want to make sure those comments and questions get answered properly in a video. So what we do is we gather up those questions we haven't addressed yet, and we address them here and get caught up in companion videos. And it is, of course, Christmas week, guys. I hope you guys are having a wonderful week already leading up to my favorite day of the year, uh, which is actually Christmas. And I've been busy as well. Uh, Ann and I, of course, bought a house and we're going to move in and in about five or six weeks. We're having renovation done on the house right now. We're very excited. Going to have a new studio for the show, which I'm very excited about. So I hope you guys are having a wonderful, wonderful week as well. Okay, guys. With all that down, let's get into talking some, uh, getting caught up on the questions that you guys sent in. And where am I on this? I'm right there. Okay, here you go. Let's start getting caught up, shall we? We're going to start off things with Anonymous, who writes in. Hey, John, I just finished watching a horror movie called The Call, and it was about this couple that torments a couple of kids. It was an okay movie, but the couple is someone I don't want to come up with in the horror movie, Tobin Bell and Lynn Shea. Well, of course, Tobin Bell, most known for playing uh, Jigsaw, and of course, a, a million other things, and Lynn Shea has been playing freaky characters as of late. I saw the previews to this. Now, I haven't watched the movie yet myself. So for those of you who don't know, know anything about it, these kids like torment this poor older couple by like throwing bricks through their windows. I don't know if it's like every year or something. And finally they get confronted by the, uh, by the older woman, by, uh, by Lynn Shea. And they have this, this confrontation. Anyway, later, I guess she dies and the husband, Tobin Bell invites those kids over and they say, if you can make a phone call and stay on the line for one minute, you get a hundred thousand dollars from her will. Only you find out that a phone was buried with her when she died. And when they call, they hear her voice. It's like really freaky. I don't know if this trailer gave away like everything in the movie or if this is all just stuff that's in the first like half hour. I simply don't know. But it it's kind of like a new trend. Maybe it's not even all that new trend in horror movies where the kids are not sympathetic. Like remember in um, that, that one with Stephen Lang, Don't Breathe. I love that movie. But like the kids who are getting tormented by the big killer are asshole kids. Like they were literally breaking into his home to try to steal from him. And so you don't feel a lot of empathy for them. These kids were like throwing bricks through their window. So you don't feel a lot of empathy for them. Any, I haven't seen the movie yet myself, but it does look kind of freaky to me. So I might have to check it out at some point. All right, next up. Uh, Zombatron, uh, five, six, seven, eight rights. I think Bo-Katan lost the Darksaber to Gideon in combat, so she needed to win it back in combat, this time as more of a pride action rather than tradition or getting it from a kid who probably was too young to rule, Sabine, like the last time. Well, there's a couple, they might do that, but there's a couple problems with the logic of that. If the problem is, well, she lost it to him in combat, then she should have to win it back from him in combat. <coughs> you know what I mean? Not from some other rando who now has it. Huh. Rando, rhymes with Mando. Uh, not from some other rando who now has it. Plus, this, I mean, that's just a, a, a fancy way of getting around the semantics. It isn't a pride thing. It's an absolute law and rule. At least that's the way they portrayed it in the final episode of Mandalorian. Because Gideon said she can't rule without this. And her rule would be a farce if she doesn't win it back in combat. Of course, the big problem was that the, the way she got the Darksaber in the first place in Rebels was Sabine Wren going, oh, uh, here you go. And Bo-Katan going, oh, cool, thanks, yoink. And, and then that was it. There was no question about, well, should she have to earn it in combat? That, that was never a thing. Now, if it's the fact that she lost it to, to Moff Gideon and therefore she has to win it back, well, then she would have to win it back from him. Anyway, I don't know. It, it just seems like, Let's just call it what it is. They're ignoring the canon. And we've seen Star Wars do that a lot over the last couple of years. They just ignore canon now. And I think that's something we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, okay, they're just ignoring canon. Now they'll come up with some kind of semantic dance around to try to make it look like it's not inconsistent with canon, but it clearly is. The Darksaber shows up and she's it's in the possession of one person, and that person goes to another person and says, oh, here, you have it. 
and they go, okay, cool. And now all of a sudden you can't do it that way. They have, you're, they're going to have to do some pretty fancy semantic footwork and I'm sure that they will, but we will, you and I will all know they're changing it. They just changed it for the sake of wanting to have this particular story point moving forward. And that's fine. That's fine. But it is what it is. Let's not pretend it's not something that it's not. All right. Next up, we've got uh, Koa1708 who writes, it's clear that a lightsaber is one of the strongest weapons in the Star Wars universe. Why don't the Empire or the First Order mass produce them for their forces? I I always got the impression, well, there's a couple of things that are needed. Kyber crystals are required and they're not common in the galaxy. So that's one thing. But the, the Star Wars lore has always kind of portrayed it as it is a force-sensitive thing to even construct one. I, I, I've always got, there's there's a, a mystical thing to a lightsaber. It's not simply take part A, screw it into part B, assemble with part C. There's always been more to it than that. So I don't know if it was ever something that could just throw it on an assembly line and make it work. Like even remember in Return of the Jedi, you know, Vader looks at the lightsaber that Luke made and said, your training is complete. I mean, call me overly romantic, but I, I don't think the training of a Jedi is completed in a shop class. It's like, oh, you learned how to screw part A into part B and assemble with part C. Well done, Jedi Knight. Well done. Like it, it seems to me there's a spiritual, mystical, almost kind of element to it. So that's always been kind of my guess why you can't do it. And, and it takes somebody special to be able to wield it, I, I guess. So there's that. All right, next up, the sock writes, I'm planning to take a vacation in February to Disney World at Universal Studios. Nice. Uh, since March, I've been putting in two to four hours of overtime every day up until last Wednesday. That's serious. Uh, very much looking forward to this. We'll give an update on how they're both going. Now, I, I mean, of course, I don't know where we're going to be in February. I, honestly, I don't know where we're going to be next week, let alone where we're going to be in February as far as, you know, things really fully being open and all that kind of stuff, especially in the midst of spikes. But for that reason and many others, Sock, I hope you're able to go, man. And you know what? It's not the worst thing, Lord. If you can't go in February, just keep that money set aside and it'll make it all the sweeter when you do go. But I hope for your sake and for all of our sakes that things are significantly different, you know, a couple of months from now and going to Disneyland is just another normal thing we can do. You might have to wait, but whenever you do get to go, I hope you have a great time, man. All right, next up, we got Christopher Chow who writes... Uh, who tipped in $20. Thank you, Christopher, for supporting the channel on that level, man. Uh, John, it feels like season one and two of Mando has united the Star Wars fandom again, especially that season two finale. Uh, unlike The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker, Mando has gotten all the fans geeking about Star Wars again. Thank you, John Favreau. I'm sure even George Lucas is proud. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I am somebody whose whole life has basically revolved around the Star Wars fandom. But the Star Wars fandom really disillusioned me a lot over the last number of years. We've seen a toxic, ugly underbelly to the Star Wars fandom the last number of years. Now, look, like when, when the, the prequels came out, there was a lot of division of opinion over that. But you didn't see, like, I remember I lived through this. You didn't see a divided fandom. Like you saw divided opinion amongst the fandom, but on a large scale, you do not see a divided fandom. And with this, you had a lot of people that loved the new Star Wars movies. You had a lot of people that hated the new Star Wars movie. You had a lot of people like me who loved one, liked another, hated the hated another. So we're kind of in the middle there somewhere. But so you can always have divided opinion amongst the fandom. But the fandom itself became very divided. And again, like I said, I, I think the last number of years have exposed a real toxic, ugly, poisonous underbelly to the Star Wars fandom. And it, it left, like me, feeling very disillusioned about it in a lot of ways. Um, here's the thing. I don't think everybody liking Mandalorian has united the fandom. What Mandalorian has done has united opinion about Mandalorian. Everybody liked it. Great. But I don't think that's a testament. And, and I say this sadly, I don't think it's a testament to a healed fandom. Not at all. The, the, the real test to whether or not the Star Wars fandom is a healed fandom is 
okay, what happens when the next Star Wars thing comes out that divides opinion? Are we able to have divided opinion without a divided fandom? That's the key. Can you have divided opinion without divided fandom? And right now there is united opinion, but I still don't think we have a united fandom. I mean, and, and I hate to be the wet blanket because uh, right now all we want to do is celebrate everything about Star Wars because Mandalorian and the finale was so great. And I think we have great things to come. That said, um, I, I do not think you have United fandom. I think you're still very, very far from United fandom. And uh, maybe we'll get there. I hope we do. Because I said, being a part of the Star Wars fandom has been a part of my life for well over 40 years. So, uh, I mean, I would love to see it get to that point again, but I, I, I am celebrating Mandalorian just because it was great. I'm not celebrating a magically united fandom in Star Wars because I don't believe there is one right now. Uh, and I would, I hope we get there. I really do hope we get there. Anyway, then maybe that's just me being jaded. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. All right. Next up. Thanks for that, Christopher. Uh, Wonder Boy uh, pieced him up, writes, uh, one of three. What a card to end the year. I'm going to assume you're talking about the final UFC card of the year where uh, Wonder Boy uh, kind of put on a clinic, like a real great Leota Machida kind of kar pure karate clinic. It was great. What a card to end the year. And what a performance by Steven Wonder Boy Thompson uh, is the IRL karate kid. Should he uh, be versus Usman next? No. Uh, listen, I, I say this as a Steven Wonder Boy Thompson fan. Usman will kill him. Usman would absolutely maul him. Um, like Wonder Boy's strengths is to be able to keep on the outside, keep distance, hit strikes, evade, strike, evade, you know, all that kind of stuff, which he did to pitch perfection um, in this match. But against Carmen Usman, he will maul him. He will suffocate him. He will maul him. He will drag him to the ground. Listen, the the very fact that you know um Wonder Boy had two great fights against Woodley both title fights he lost both times but they were great fights against Woodley who was the uh at the time the welterweight champion Usman destroyed Woodley like just owned him Woodley never stood a chance in that fight and I just don't, I think Wonder Boy is back. I think he's going to have some great entertaining matches. I think he's going to have some, you know, high profile matches, but put him in there against Usman. No, he, he will have to win a couple of more other high profile, high marquee matchups. Like, I think you need to see Wonder Boy beat one or two other top seven guys to get a shot at Usman because when he does, he's just going to get destroyed. He's going to get totally ripped apart. Uh, it just is what it is. Mm. And I say that as a fan. I say that as a fan. Anyway, keep going. Uh, Christopher Chow writes, John, also want to say congrats on buying your first house with Anne. Thank you so much. After everything that's happened this year, it didn't look like 2020 stopped you from achieving your goals. You finished your documentary and purchased your first home. Congrats. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it was... Um, Listen, it's it's uh, been a crappy year. I mean, 2020 is going to be a year we all cannot wait to forget. But... You know, even within crappy years, we can have those small victories. And for me, a couple of those small victories was being able to, you know, work on and complete my documentary, which again, thank you to everybody who's been checking it out. It's it, the response has been fantastic. So thank you all so much. Uh, and Ann and I finally being able to buy our first house, which has been really great. So thank you for that very, very much. Uh uh, oh, so this, that was Christopher Chow, Wonder Boy 2 of 4 writes, uh, have you seen Kingdom on Netflix? Not the Korean show, not the Korean uh, uh, zombie show, which I I do watch, um, but the MMA show that stars Frank Grillo as an MMA coach who owns a gym and trains his sons. One of them is Nick Jonas. You got to watch it, uh, even if it's just the pilot. Best MMA show, however, and most underrated show of all time because it aired as a DirecTV exclusive original, so nobody saw it until recently dropped on Netflix. I beg you to watch the pilot. You can't call yourself an MMA fan if you don't watch. Sure, I can. Watch me. I'm a massive MMA fan, and I have no interest in watching this show. See how that works? You can be an MMA fan and not watch it. Anyway, uh, you can't call yourself an MMA fan if you don't watch. It's almost breaking bad drama good, and they use real UFC guys for the fights like Diego Sanchez, Cub Swanson, 
I used to love Cub Swanson uh, and more. I won't spoil, but please, please, please just watch the pilot. Uh, I promise you'll like it. And before uh, I said to you, uh, Boomy Avatar should be played by Defoe because that's perfect casting <laughs> and the, the Mad King uh, and uh, and you agreed so I'm uh, one up uh, I'll tip tomorrow to hear your thoughts yeah I I have no there's there's a couple of reasons why I have no desire to watch Kingdom I love Frank Grillo and obviously I love MMA but I watched the previews for it because it is MMA based and Frank Grillo's in it so I paid very close attention to to the previews, they did not look good at all. To, uh, just to me, to me personally, they didn't look good at all. And then I talked to a couple of friends of mine who had seen it and none of them liked it. Now I didn't talk to like 30 or 40 people to watch, but I got like three people that I know uh, who watched it. And, and the reason I didn't have 30 or 40 people is because not a lot of people saw it, but I know a couple of people who saw it and none of them liked it. And a couple of them actually thought it was quite terrible. Now, that doesn't mean it is terrible. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be people who absolutely love it. But when there is such limited time and so many things to watch, and I'm so far behind on a lot of things that I'm very, very interested in watching, um, then I just got to pick and choose what I watch very carefully. So I am probably not going to be watching Kingdom. And I'll be honest with you, dude. You're the first person I've ever heard say to me, John, you got to watch this. It's great. I've never heard anybody say that. Uh, but you never know. Maybe it'll be like um, Harley Quinn. You know, I, did, I didn't watch Harley Quinn. I thought it looked stupid. And then I heard one person tell me it was great. Then I heard another, then another, then another. Before you knew it, I had like 15 or 20 people telling me it was awesome. I should absolutely check it out. And I'm so glad that I did. So maybe if I hear some more people tell me that it's really great and fantastic, maybe I'll check it out. So congrats and thank you for being the first voice in that pile and if, if i do get more recommendations maybe i will check it out thanks a lot for throwing that but it's cool to know the cub swanson's in there i've i always loved him all right next up kara black writes over under 50 percent chance uh, over or under a 50 percent chance that luke skywalker meets his father's ex-apprentice ahsoka for the first time in her upcoming series i'm going to take under 50 percent, and i'll tell you why <clears throat> when they had luke skywalker I'm not saying 0%. I'm just taking under 50. When they decided and made the choice to have Luke Skywalker with this digital, I am Luke Skywalker. I am a Jedi. Come, little one. He is waiting for your permission. With the completely non-moving face. When they made the decision to do that instead of just having an actor play a younger Luke Skywalker, they were, in essence, making a choice that this was going to be, I think it's implied that they were making a choice that this is going to be the only time we see Luke Skywalker. I think if they had a plan to have Luke pop up once in a while, which is possible, I'm just saying it seems to me like if they were going to have a plan to have Luke pop up once in a while and actually, you know, act in scenes, then the logical choice would have been to get another actor and use prosthetics and makeup to make him look as much like Luke as possible. Maybe even do some digital work, whatever to get an actual actor to play young Luke by just doing a digital recreation of young Mark Hamill, who was on set apparently, but to just do a digital recreation of the face that seems to imply to me that they don't have a lot of future plans for young Luke. Otherwise, why not just get another actor to play him? Now, again, that's not a certainty. And again, I'm not saying it's 1% or 2%. I'm just saying I'll take under 50. Because 50% becomes that line where you're saying, I think it's likely or I think it's unlikely. I'm just saying I think it's unlikely that we'll see it there. I mean, although it does have some great potential dramatic elements there for sure, but just the fact that they made the choice to use a digital representation of young Luke instead of just another actor, that seems to imply that they don't have future plans, but I don't know that for sure. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. We will wait and see. Good, thanks for asking that, Kara. All right, next up. Also, Kara, one detail that surprisingly wasn't explained this season is how Bo-Katan lost the Darksaber to Moff Gideon. Do you feel she lost it in combat or was it stolen from her uh, when the Imperials sacked Mandalore? My guess is it was stolen from her because here's the thing. I don't see how Moff Gideon 
who has been hiding from Bo-Katan could beat Bo-Katan in a one-on-one battle when Bo-Katan is equipped with the Dark Saber. I don't see how he wins that fight. I mean, clearly he's a capable warrior. He had that fight with uh, with uh, uh, Din, with Mando, that he lost. So how could he fight without a Darksaber against Bo-Katan with a Darksaber? I'm not sure, especially since he basically has kind of been hiding and eluding Bo-Katan. Like Bo-Katan's been having to try to hunt him down, right? If Moff Gideon whipped Bo-Katan in a fight when she had a Darksaber and he did not, he wouldn't be the slightest bit nervous of her or afraid of her. If he would, he would hear, wait, that Bo-Katan who I whipped, she's still coming looking for me. Bring her in. I'm going to finish this, you know, sort of thing. That's what it feels like. So my guess, but it's only a guess. I don't know this. I'm not willing to put money on. It. I'm just pure guess. My guess is somehow, some way it was kind of stolen from her. You know, so that's that's my guess. We'll we'll find out though. We'll find out within a year, which I'm very excited about. All right, next up, Carter writes. I'll be very curious to see if all the people who refuse to acknowledge Kathleen Kennedy's guiding hand in the Mandalorian stay consistent and heap all of their praises on WandaVision squarely on the showrunner and directors instead of Kevin Feige. I highly doubt it. Oh no, it's true. And look, Kevin Feige, when if WandaVision is great, and I'm guessing it probably will be, but you never know, might not be. But if it is great, you know that Kevin Feige is going to get a lot of credit and well-deserved, deservedly so. He's the head of Marvel Studios. Nothing happens without his okay and without his approval and without his oversight. It's so sure. Well, I mean, a lot of the credit will have to go to the showrunners and writers and directors. Absolutely. Uh, Maybe even the lion's share of it should. But there will be a lot of praise for Kevin Feige and he deserves a part of that. Uh, But it is kind of funny. Again, watching... People desperately try to find ways to not give any credit to Kathleen Kennedy for the success of Mandalorian. It's embarrassing. Let's just be honest. It's embarrassing. It's totally embarrassing. Now, I say that as a guy who for years has said, I'm a big fan of Kathy Kennedy. I think she's one of the greatest producers of all time. Steven Spielberg says she is the greatest producer of all time. But as a studio head... She has botched her two main responsibilities. Number one responsibility, getting on the same page and making sure the talent she's working with is on the same page as her with her directors of upcoming projects. She went through a record number of directors in a record short number of films. Like even the MCU has lost a director now and again. But she had, at one point, it was like five or six sets of directors she went through in five films. I mean, it's, it's like an unprecedented pace. That is a major red flag. And then secondly, she completely failed in giving an overall plan and direction and roadmap for the new sequel trilogy. And they just winged it from film to film. They just made it up as they went along. Who does that? So look, I'm a big fan of Kathy Kennedy, but I said like over a couple of years ago, I said she needs to step down as the head of Lucasfilm. Go back to what she loves and what she's iconically fantastic at, which is just producing movies. Go for it. But if we're going to hold her responsible for the failures because she's the head of the studio, then you also have to give her credit for when you get the wins, at least a portion of the credit. You know, I've made this argument before. I will make it again. Kathy Kennedy was getting hundreds of pitches for Star Wars content across her desk. Hundreds from some of the biggest names in entertainment and some smaller names in entertainment. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. It's like people tend to think that, oh, Kathy Kennedy was just hanging out on a Wednesday afternoon, nothing to do. And somebody said, uh, Miss Kennedy, John Favreau, uh, John Favreau's here to see you. Really? John Favreau wants to come in and see me? Oh, wow. And then he came in. It's like, oh, I'm so glad you came, John. Nobody's been giving me any ideas for Star Wars shows. Thank goodness you came along. No, it was just another pitch on her desk. But she saw in that pitch the potential of what 
this lone gunslinger in the wild west frontier in a Star Wars setting could be. I still contend that 80% of other people who could have been the head of Lucasfilm at that time probably would have looked at that lone western in the set in Star Wars and probably just would have thrown it out and not recognized the potential in it. So number one, she recognized the potential in it amongst all the other pitches she had been getting. She recognized the potential in it. By the way, it's the same thing that happened with Rogue One. Everybody agrees Rogue One is great, right? And it was the same thing. A pitch came to her from John Knoll, and she recognized in that pitch some real potential. They made the movie, had a lot of drama in making it, but it ended up being a really great, fun movie that a lot of Star Wars fans really love. So she recognized the potential in Mandalorian, brings in John Favreau to meet. He comes in, they talk about it. She sees that she totally understands what his vision is. He understands what she wants from it at the same time. They connect on that. And then as John Favreau tells the story, she says to him, I really think this would be something great for you to work with Dave Filoni on. And I want to connect you with Dave Filoni, make him your Padawan whatever, but I I want to, I want you to hook up with him on this and let him kind of come along and he can learn a lot from you. But also I think because of his understanding of the lore, he's going to be able to contribute a lot to this. And she was the one who came up with the idea to match up John Favreau with Dave Filoni. And then from there on out has been there in a producer role as well to support everything they've wanted to do along the way to make things happen and do the things a producer should do. And it's a win. But here's what I keep trying to tell people. You cannot do what I do, which is hold her accountable for the losses. And we should hold her accountable for the losses. She's the head of the studio. She has to take responsibility for that. But you cannot hold her responsible for the losses and then try some way to do a little song and dance where you make up a fake reality where she doesn't get any of the credit for the wins. She absolutely gets credit for the wins and she should get credit for the wins. And the way you've just kind of structured that Carter is exactly true. When WandaVision comes out and is a hit, a lot of people are going to want to give credit to Kevin Feige and and, and rightfully so to a degree. So yeah, I mean, I still, I still think Kathy Kennedy needs now that she's set up Star Wars in a really good place. It is time for her to step away at least not right now, but probably over the course of the next year. I am guessing before 2021, uh, let me be frank. I am guessing by the end of 2021, she won't be the head of Lucasfilm anymore. And her legacy will be in a much better place than it was a year or two ago, because now she's got Star Wars on this path that everybody's really excited about. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. At any rate, let's move on here. Uh, Next up, The Sock writes. So I watched Escape from New York. Fun movie. It's a great movie. Then I watched, ooh, then I watched Escape from L.A. I heard it was bad, but it's goddamn unwatchable. It's just a lesser copy, and everyone has the enthusiasm of a person uh, that just got forced to come into work on their one day off. It's, no, listen, there, Escape from L.A. is one of the responsible movies that we should hold accountable for the general understanding that sequels are never as good as the originals. Obviously, that's not true. But there is a real pervading thought out there that sequels are as good as original. And one of the films that was kind of partially responsible for that being the mindset of a lot of film fans for a very long time was Escape from L.A. So I think you're right on that sock. Sorry you had to see that, man. Uh, James L.H. writes, Hey, John, we've talked uh, about the passing of the original Boba Fett, uh, Jeremy Bullock, as we have Uh, with your extensive Star Wars knowledge, guessing you already know, but I'll mention anyway, that he was also the Imperial officer in Empire who uses Leia during the Luke. It's a trap. No, she's saying don't. It's a trap. That's the actual line. But yes. So in Empire Strikes Back, as Luke is going through the hallway, the empty hallways of Cloud City, and he finally sees Leia being marched away, and he's, there's a gunfight ensues. She says, Luke, don't. It's a trap. And they pulls him away. The Imperial officer grabbing her by the shoulders and pulling her around that corner was the Boba Fett actor, Jeremy Bullock. Now, the reason that happened was, was as the story goes, 
there was another extra who was supposed to be doing that and was fitted for his outfit and everything and got sick on the day. How would you like to be that guy? I, I'm just, I'm just a, you know, a guy who just does a little, some bit character acting here and there. I get little spots, some extra roles, whatever. And you were supposed to be the guy pulling Leia away. She yells, don't, it's a trap. That's, that's, that's hard to live with because you got the sniffles the day. that. But anyway, so they looked around and it's like, well, Jeremy's here uh, and, and Boba's not in, in, in the shot. So Jeremy, why don't you take that off? And guess what? He fit the outfit that was fitted for the other guy as the story goes, and uh, history was made. So Boba Fett is both bounty hunter and imperial officer, at least the actor was. So anyway, there you go. Thanks for writing that in, James L.H. All right, next up, we got Tony Rodriguez who writes, Well, John, you didn't get it in the movies, but your campaign for Luke to ignite the green and wreck shop on fools, which I was calling for for years, uh, came true in a TV show that gets it. Will we ever see a movie that understands what we want as fans? Well, here's here's the problem. Here's the problem. What we want as fans is not always the best thing to do in a movie and is not necessarily always the right thing to do in a movie. Uh, take that one Transformers movie, for example, with uh, Grimlock, the Dinobot, right? What does everybody want to see? Optimus Prime riding a Dinobot with a giant sword, right? Fans wanted to see that. Transformers fans wanted to see Grimlock and they wanted to see that. But guess what? The movie was crap. It was complete crap. Fan service, just giving the fans what they want is just plain fan service. But a fan service, as we've talked in in the show recently, is just a tool like any other. Fan service is not necessarily a bad thing. If you use it right, like any tool, it can be incredibly effective and create great, fabulous, memorable moments. You don't use it the right way or at the right time, or if you overuse it or rely on it, it can just make a mess, an even worse mess. It's just a tool. Um, so you look at some situations where a lot of fan service is used and it just makes a bad situation even worse. It makes a bad movie embarrassing. But sometimes when it's used right, like Captain America, which was totally pointless in the movie and made no sense. It was just fan service, but it was perfectly timed, perfectly used fan service when Captain America says, Avengers, assemble. Why he whispered the last line, I don't know. How anybody heard him, I don't know. But it is what it is. But it was perfectly timed, perfectly executed. And it created an exciting, memorable moment that a lot of people talked about. And this one thing with the the climax of Mandalorian Season 2 was a great example of good use of fan service. But fan service isn't always the right thing to do. And, And here's always my worry. Just going by what do fans want? What do fans want? What do fans want? Instead of giving like some of the best movies of all time are ones that didn't give the fans what they wanted. They gave us what we needed. You know what I mean? That's often, it's the easy thing to just give fans what they want. Fans are saying what? They want Optimus Prime riding a Dinobot? Okay, okay, let's put that in. I mean, it's easy to just pull, pluck out, okay, what's the popular thing? If Filmmakers just did that. Then we're only two steps away from Ow My Balls. Remember that from uh, Idiocracy? The number one show on television, Ow My Balls. That's what we're heading towards. If all if all filmmakers ever focus on is what do fans want? No, give us what we don't even realize we need. That is what the great filmmakers do. And throw in, at when it's appropriate, at the right time, in the right place, use the right way, throw in fan service as well. Absolutely. Because who among us did not literally leak our pants when Luke Skywalker shows up in the X-Wing and the green lightsaber comes out and we see the gloved hand and he's wrecking shop and he's crushing the dark troopers with the hand and then he pulls off the mask to show us that horrible CGI face. I am my Jedi. Come, little one. I mean, whatever. That's fine. The pants were already wet. It doesn't matter. Uh, use it the right way. So yeah, it, it was good to see. And it was... It was great to see something I had on camera been crying to the heavens for uh, a few years late, but come to fruition. And it was great for me, Tony. I hope it was good for you. All right, next up, 
We got Isaac Zabalza. Isaac Zabalza writes, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, Isaac. Forgive me. I'm sorry about that. Hey, John. uh, Love this online community. Thanks for being a part of it, man. Been listening since January. Uh, Your thoughts on Rec Room for a Dream. Oh, I've talked about that movie a lot. I love Rec Room for a Dream. Ellen Bernstein gives one of the best performances ever. She she got an Academy Award nomination for that, as a matter of fact. Um, Julia is great in Aaron Brockovich, but Ellen should have won the Oscar, in my opinion, but had one already. Thanks. Uh, I don't know. Julia Roberts. What, I, I mean, Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich was all kinds of spectacular. I, I don't know that I would say Ellen Bernstein. Uh, look, if Ellen Bernstein had won the Academy Award that year, I would have no complaints, but I certainly have no complaints that Julia won over her at the same time. Requiem for a Dream is like one of those mind F movies. Um, look, honestly, I don't have kids, but when I have kids, I've said this ever since I saw this movie. When I have kids and they're old enough, the way I'm going to keep them off drugs is make them at the young enough age that it'll have impact, but make sure they're old enough so it's not just going to make them have nightmares forever. I'm going to make them sit down and watch Rec Room for a Dream. It's, it is the ultimate don't do drugs kids movies. I remember my dad, my dad was a smoker and uh, and he quit cold turkey decades ago. I mean, I don't know. My dad just quit cold turkey. Boom. He was done. But he had been a smoker uh, for most of his life. And I guess he decided he didn't want his son uh, to be a smoker. So when I was a wee lad, I think it might have been either a cigarette or a pipe or something. My dad had me take a drag on a pipe or a cigarette or something. And it just mauled, it mauled me. I mean, and I never smoked. Rest, rest of my life, I never smoked. Never touched it. Not because I had any moral problems. with It's just that it was imbued in my brain. No, no, no. I have this terrible association with smoking pride. Nope, not going to touch the stuff. And I think watching Rec Room for, the, for a Dream at the right age can be that sort of scarring, positive scarring thing. But any, overall, as a movie, it's great. And the music is fantastic in it, too. Thanks for that, Isaac. All right, next up. Ryan Loner writes, one of two. Disney is taking a real risk keeping Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka as she's currently accused of assaulting a transgender person while while shouting slurs and there's a distinct chance the verdict uh, could come in could come in while they're in the middle of shooting however any however anyone feels about an actor simply saying nasty things like Gina Carano surely this is on another level and there will need need to be consequences if she's found guilty okay so for those of you who don't know anything about this situation Rosaria Dawson, I believe this goes all the way back to like 2018. If I remember correctly, she faced like 20 accusations and specific legal complaints that were brought against her in, in some sort of, it wasn't, I don't think it was an actual class action lawsuit, but a lawsuit being brought against her by a number of people. One of whom was a longtime family friend who said that not that Rosario Dawson assaulted her, but that Rosario Dawson's mother assaulted them. Okay? Not that Rosario Dawson assaulted them, but that Rosario Dawson's mother assaulted them. But there was also a lot of other things about discrimination and and uh, verbal abuse and uh, uh, slurs and trans transphobia, phobic kind of things, all that kind of stuff. However... Going back a while now, 18 out of the 20 complaints have been withdrawn without settlement. In other words, 18 out of the 20 uh, accusations, the accusers literally just said, no, I take it back. There was no settlement. There was no anything like that. It was just, no, no I, I take it back. So 18 out of the 20 have been withdrawn, voluntarily withdrawn. The two remaining accusations are of that one longtime family friend. And there is actually a motion in front of a court right now where a judge is about to rule about whether there's even enough evidence for an actual trial to take place. And it may come back that the judge says, the judge may exactly say there's not even enough evidence here to even have a trial. Uh, now, they may say there's enough evidence to at least have a trial, but that still may go. But, but the key thing here is that of the remaining stuff, 
Rosario Dawson is not being accused of assault from everything that I've read and I understand. And by the way, I am not a world's leading expert on this particular Rosario Dawson trial or whatever. So understanding all of that, Disney looked into this and they uh, they decided they felt good about it. They felt good that, no, we don't think Rosario is guilty of anything. We don't think she's done anything. And we think that, like the fact that 18 out of the 20 complaints have already been withdrawn on her. If, if I remember that I, I haven't studied up on this. So if I'm remembering it correctly, uh, I'm sure any minute now I'm going to have like get, if I'm wrong about any of that, I'm sure the comments is going to be bombarded with John, actually what happened? Okay. And maybe that might happen. I'm just saying, um, but I think Disney probably looked at that and said, okay, yeah, we feel very, we feel comfortable about this. Now you never know what will happen in court. But uh, again, 18 of the 20 have been withdrawn. Of the two remaining, the thing of assault was not actually against Rosario Dawson herself. It's against her mom. So how, how this will all play out, I'm not sure. But I don't think it actually looks all that risky for Disney. I think Disney looks like they're probably in a pretty safe spot. You never know what can happen. But as of right now, it looks like they're in a pretty safe spot. We'll see how this unfolds. Because, um, you know, listen, if... If, you know, there are 20 accusations, it turns out the 20 accusations against her were true and proven in court, then F Rosario Dawson. I say this is a lifelong Rosario Dawson fan, but F her if, if all that was true. But it looks like it's not. So we'll have to wait and see. We'll just have to wait and see. All right. Thanks for bringing that up, Ryan. Next up, Luke1234 writes, you've mentioned that Luke Skywalker is your favorite character. Uh, at least in Star Wars, yes. Uh, but what moment or film made him your favorite? Did you become a fan after episode four, even though he is a better written character in episodes five and six? Yeah, listen, you got to understand, Star Wars for me, Star Wars is my earliest childhood memory. Like, we all have that earliest childhood memory. Mine is watching Star Wars. And then I don't have an, my next earliest, I honestly believe my next earliest childhood memory that I recall is being told by my mom, I think, that there was going to be a Star Wars part two. And I, I remember where it was. I was on Carson Drive in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, running along the sidewalk where we had a red fence and being told there's going to be another Star Wars movie. And I'm like, yeah, like, I, I mean, that's just how influential. So it, I think it's right from the first time I saw the first Star Wars is probably where Luke became my 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 first and favorite movie characters. That's that's probably where it happened, Luke 1, 2, 3, 4. All right. Uh, where are we at here? Mograbius. Mograbius writes, I think Mandalorian can have a time jump. I think it makes sense. Haven't heard this option in discussions yet. What do you think will be better for the show? Continue from where they left off or have a time jump? Well, there's a third option. There's a third option. The third option is, like, to me, there are three things. Picking up where you left off, then a time jump, or then picking up in time relative. What I mean by that is this. If you have a show and it ends, and then eight months later, season two starts, and that season picks up eight months later, then that's time relative. Right, it's not actually a, a jump forward in time. It has been eight months since we saw the last episode, so we have just come along in regular time, time relative, and it starts back up. Time jumps to me is more like Endgame, right? Where we've jumped forward, what was it, five years? You take a five-year jump forward, even though it had only been one year since we saw the previous movie, or however long the, the specific amount of time was in between releases. My suspicion, my suspicion is that it will probably pick up where we left off, but they could also go time relative. What I don't think they'll do is do a big time jump. There's too much story to tell in this intermediate time. That's part of the reason why I think it'll probably just pick up where it leaves off because we've got this confrontation now. We've got Bo-Katan and we've got Mando have a conflict right now. Now it is possible that we get into Mandalorian season three and they pick up time relative one year after the events of Mandalorian season two. And we find out quickly in that year, Bo-Katan and, Man and Mando have decided to say, let's table the issue of the dark saber for, for, for now. Let's not even 
mention its existence to anybody. I'll, Mando, you keep it on you and we'll deal with this problem you and I are going to have later. For now, we need to retake Mandalore. And the show picks up time relative with them on Mandalore in the midst of trying to get their planet back. I'm not even sure right now who they're trying to get their planet back from because the Empire isn't around anymore. But it is also possible that they just pick right up from the events. Luke leaves and now they go, okay, now what do we do? And that's where the show picks up. But what I don't think they're going to do is pick it up three years later or five years later. One of the reasons I don't think they're going to do that is because, remember, Rangers of the New Republic, Boba Fett, and Ahsoka are all happening at the same time that the events of Mandalorian Season 3 are happening. And I don't think they're just going to jump forward three or four years. Again, could be time relative. It picks up one year, just like in real time. But I can't see them making a jump forward. So that's my guess at any rate. What they're actually going to do, I have not heard. But that is my guess. It's either going to be immediately after the events of Season 2, or it'll be time relative, picking up right where it should pick off. So if it's been nine months since we left Season 2 then it should be nine months later. So we'll see how that goes. All right, next up, Rebecca Nunez writes, Hey, John, my fiance, Edgar Musqueda, is a huge fan of yours. Oh, thanks so much. And today, December 20th, that was yesterday, uh, December 20th is his 31st birthday. Uh, it would mean the world to him if you gave him a birthday shout out. Thanks so much for all that you do as he really looks forward to your shows. Happy holidays. Well, Edgar, happy birthday, belated as it is. Happy birthday to you, my friend. May you, I hope you had a fantastic birthday and may you have a triumphant year ahead of yourself. Certainly one that was better than 2020. And uh, you've got a really wonderful girlfriend there in Rebecca who wrote that in for you. So thanks so much, Rebecca. And seriously, Edgar, happy birthday, man. I hope you had a great one. And I hope you have a fantastic birthday week, fantastic birthday month, and an even better birthday year, my friend, until your next one. All right. Thanks for that. All right. Next up, Kara Black writes, Another question I have is why does the sequel trilogy hate green lightsabers when it only uses blue and red for the most ba for the most part, except during short flashback scenes in The Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker? I need to see more green lightsabers in action. I'm not going to lie to you, Kara. I, I'm, I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I don't care. I've, I've, I've been one of these guys that I've, even in, in the height of Star Wars, like when Star Wars is coming back and when, and by coming back, I mean Phantom Menace. I don't even mean, uh, uh, the force awakens Phantom Menace, even in the height of all that, it's like, like when words start going around, this window is going to have a purple lightsaber sploosh, right? I've never cared. I really don't care what the color of a lightsaber is. I never have. I never will. Hmm. Like even some of the anime stuff. Oh my God. Did you see they have white lightsabers? Sploosh. I, I, I don't care. <laughs> I, this one thing as a Star Wars character, I have never cared about. The one good thing, I will say this though, about the, the relative uniqueness of the green saber. The one good thing about the relative uniqueness, because it's not completely unique, but the relative uniqueness of the green saber is that you know, in Mandalorian season two finale, when the green saber comes out, we know who it is, right? That's basically a thumbprint. As if the X-Wing wasn't enough, the black hood that he wears in Return of the Jedi wasn't enough, the one gloved hand wasn't enough, I mean, whatever. But that is kind of like the one good thing about that. Otherwise, I got to be honest with you, I've never cared what color a lightsaber is. Other than, you know, the good visual cue that red equals Sith, that's that's kind of helpful in a storytelling way. But other than that, I've never really cared, to be honest with you. I just haven't. But you're not alone, Kara. A lot of people, a lot of Star Wars fans care very deeply about, you know, the color of sabers and who has which color. And to a lot of people, that's really cool. To me, it's just one of the things that's never really mattered to me all that much. But I'm glad you do, Kara. All right, next up. Uh, James Beal writes, what do you think the chances are we see Obi-Wan take a trip to Dagobah in the upcoming series? Maybe face off with Anakin in the dark side cave? Uh, unlikely. I mean, look, when it comes to Star Wars right now, anything is on the table. Absolutely. Like they're doing a lot of fan service stuff. So, hey, return trip to Dagobah could absolutely be in the cards. I don't really see a narrative need for it. But then again, we don't know the story right now. So it could be possible. It could be possible they do that. 
Uh, again, I, I'm not convinced they will. I'm not convinced they should. And that seems more like a starting training exercise. And it does for literally a member of the Jedi Council in Obi-Wan Kenobi. So I, I'm going to say unlikely, but definitely wouldn't say it's completely out of the realm of possibility. That's my thoughts on that at any rate, James. All right, next up, Eric Lynch writes, John, I would love Ahsoka and Luke to meet. It would be so cool if Luke was trying to create a new Jedi Order and he meets Ahsoka and tries to create the Jedi Council and have Ahsoka on it as she is a respected Jedi Master herself. Technically, no, she is not a Jedi Master. Um, she, she never achieved the rank of Master. So anyway, there's that. Second, I, I think Luke is a long ways away from reestablishing the a Jedi council. I think he is a long way away from that. I think he is at this point, even in his own head, uh, reforming the Jedi council is probably like decades away, decades away. The one dramatic purpose I could see in a Luke meeting Ahsoka is the fact that there could be real emotional drama there with the fact that not only is this the son of her master, but to hear the tale that before the end, he turned back that Anakin turned back to the light side, right? There's, there's a dramatic scene to be had there. That could be really nice. Again, I, I have my doubts that they'll do it simply because I think if you wanted to have a Luke Skywalker acting, you would have just gotten an actor to play it instead of a digital recreation. Ahsoka, your former master, Anakin Skywalker, my father, turn back to the dark, to the light side and save me from the Emperor. Why is your face not moving, Master Luke? Never mind. Pay no attention to my unmoving face. Like, I, I don't know. It just seems like they should have replic gotten an actual actor if they're going to have some acting scenes later on. So I think it's unlikely. But, I mean, who would deny that that scene could be a very emotional, dramatic scene. It would be. Even people who don't like the Ahsoka Tano character like me, I, even I got to say, that scene would, would probably be pretty powerful. That would probably be a pretty powerful scene. But then again, they've already taken somebody like me who doesn't even like the Ahsoka Tano character, and they've made me excited for the Ahsoka Tano show. Who figured? Do you tell me six months ago, John, six months from now, you're going to be excited about an Ahsoka Tano show. You've been drinking too much, sir. But here we are. I'm excited about the Ahsoka Tano show. Down is up, up is down, cats and dogs, all sorts of stuff. All right, next up. Uh, uh, Guillaume LaBelle writes, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name, writes, um, Hey, John and Rob. Rob's obviously not here right now. Have you watched the new documentary, The Last Blockbuster? I have not, but I have watched the previews for it. Uh, it's about the last remaining blockbuster video location up in Bend, Oregon. Uh, watching this made me miss video stores and all the more. What are your best video store memories? I've not seen it, but I, I do want to get around to watching because I have a lot of memories, especially back when me and my buddies, the first time I moved out of my house, um, me and a couple of friends lived in this house together and it was me. It was my buddy Rodney. He's the one who actually owned the house. My buddy Rodney, um, uh, my friend Tran lived in there and a bunch of other friends kind of rotated. And it was a big house and we had a lot of our friends just kind of living in there at one point or another. But one of our, one of the things that would happen at least three or four times a week was a couple of us would make the trip down to Roger's video, which was like Canada's version of Blockbuster. Go to Roger's video and uh, pick out some DVDs. And, and that was just kind of a, 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 um, a tradition, a, a weekly thing, a multi-time weekly thing that we would do. And then, you know, a little bit, even a little bit later, uh, when, you know, back when I used to do the movie blog, one of the most popular posts I ever did on the movie blog uh, that literally got millions of views was this article I wrote, this post I wrote on how to pick movies at, how to effectively pick the right movies at Rogers video or at the DVD store with your date. Right. And it was a very simple premise. I've, Cause listen, going, I have seen couples 
break up in a video store, right? That can be one of the most tense, intensive, conflict-inspiring things is going to the video store and completely disagreeing on what to get. And I've, I've seen evenings go bad because a trip to the video store went bad. And this one article I wrote that, that became probably the single most viewed article I ever wrote on the movie blog. My principle was simple. It's a very simple principle. It was this. Each of you take turns taking one of two roles. There's role A and role B. Role A, role A the person in role A, gets to go in and pick three movies. From there, the person in role B gets to pick which of those three movies are going home to be watched that night. Then the next time you go, you swap roles. Now the person who was in role B is going to be the person in role A. Now you get to pick out three movies. You present them to the other person who's in role B and they get to pick out of the three. And I said, this will save your relationship. I got so many, John Campia, love MD. I got so many emails over the years from people who followed that back when video stores were still a thing, who followed that simple advice and said, you saved our relationship. Well, I'm here to be of service. But yeah, I, I, I remember a lot, but just going with my buddies, but also whenever I would be like our, our date evenings would be, you know, picking up a movie and watching it at home. Uh, or my place or her place, whatever. Uh, a lot of very successful evenings. Smooth, pick, no arguments, no fights, nice smooth. It was always great. But yeah, I got to watch that documentary at some point. Thanks for writing that in. All right, next up. An anonymous viewer writes, uh, I saw new photos for the Coming to America sequel the other day. I saw those too. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm not saying it has to be better than the original. Uh, just don't suck. Don't base it on remember that person or nostalgia. Make sure it's funny, damn it. I mean, that's the first thing, right? As a comedy, the first thing you got to do is you got to be funny. You can't mess up the part, the requirement of being funny. You got to nail that. Now, of course, Throwing in the right little dabs of nostalgia, a little bit of fan service here and there, that can be really effective too. But if you, here's the thing about comedies. I say this all the time. Comedies are like horror movies. Your horror movie can suck in every way conceivable. But if your horror movie gives thrills and scares, everything else will be forgiven. It doesn't, it won't matter if your humor was bad and your characters are shallow and all that. None of that will matter. If you do a horror movie and you give thrills and scares, everything else will be forgiven. But you can have Academy Award level performances and this deep, intricate narrative. If your horror movie does not deliver goods on the scares and the thrills, nobody will care. The comedies are very much the same way. Your movie could be the worst movie ever made, but if you make the audience laugh a lot, a lot can be forgiven. You can do everything right in a movie, but if your jokes don't land and you don't make the audience laugh, nobody will care. And that has got to be the starting place with uh, Coming to America too. But listen, if, if Eddie Murphy's recent work is any indication, we could be in for some fun, man. We could be in for some absolute fun. I'm really looking forward to watching it. All right, next up, we got Rebel Plot Armor writes, do you think after getting their butts let me try this again. Do you think after getting their butts kicked repeatedly in Rebels and The Mandalorian that the Empire might get a flashback in one of the new shows that shows how threatening they can be again? Maybe conquering, slagging, slash glassing, or destroying a planet. Maybe. I mean, listen, you look at Rogue One um, and you saw the terror of the Empire, right? You saw the absolute terror of the Empire. When you go into something like Rogue One, there are times when you do need to remind the eye or go back to the original movie. You go back to the original Star Wars, A New Hope. You're reminded of the terror of the Empire and what it is and what it represents. I mean, a lot of times they're the Keystone Cops, sure. But sometimes they're absolutely terrifying and amazing and like truly great foils. And they, they'll they they'll need to do something to remind the audience of that once in a while. Or else every time our heroes come into conflict with informal, former Imperials and Stormtroopers and stuff like that, they're not going to be seen as a threat. You're going to have to do something to remind us that they are a threat. And maybe 
a Rogue One kind of moment or maybe a New Hope kind of moment might just be the trick to do that, but they're going to need to do that. And I have a feeling in the new shows, combined with Mandalorian Season 3, Ahsoka Tano, uh, Rangers of the New Republic, uh, even Boba Fett, I think Grand Admiral Thrawn, again, I don't know this. This is just me speculating. I think Grand Admiral Thrawn is going to be the Thanos of all that. He's going to be the big baddie of all of them. And he's going to remind the, the the galaxy why people feared the Empire in the first place. And he's going to be somebody they have to kind of combine for and uh, move against. So we'll see how that goes. All right, guys, listen, we've been going a little bit over an hour now, so I've got to call it right now. But do not worry. We still have lots of questions to get to, and we will get caught up on those uh, with the John Campia show tomorrow because I am I said I wasn't going to do another show before Christmas, but as it turns out, I now have the day open tomorrow, so I'm going to do an episode of the John Campia show. But I'm going to also going to make sure we get caught up on all the questions partially in the John Campia show and then another companion video in the next day or two. So we will get all caught up. Anyway, guys, that'll do it. For this installment of a companion video, thank you guys so much for being here and being a part of it. A special thank you to all of you guys who send in these questions. Number one, because you give us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you support this channel while you do it. And all of us here associated with the John Campia Show, thank you guys very, very much for your support. That'll do it for me, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia. And until next time, my friends, bye-bye. <laughs>